Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 163 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at my ID3. This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap the free-to-download app that helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. Before we start, I wanted to let you know that next week we're talking with Jonathan Jenkins from Motability about the efforts there concerning accessibility at charges and getting non-able-bodied people into electric vehicles. Our main topic of discussion today, though, is my ID3. There are several episodes of this podcast where someone who has a specific electric vehicle comes on and talks about the good and the bad of their car. Over the years, we've done episodes on the BMW i3, the Tesla Model 3, the Polestar, the Peugeot E208, the Nissan Leaf, and many others. Well, this time, I get to do one on my own car, the VW ID3. I've had it since June last year, so I think now's the time to talk a little bit about it and bring you up to date with where we are in terms of satisfaction, the good, the bad and they're just plain ugly. A few months after I got my ID3, I was at a conference where the head of VW in the UK was there. I chatted with him, mainly to find out when the latest over-the-air update for the software was coming. Incidentally, he told me 12 weeks after it's released in Europe. That was almost six months ago, and as at the time of recording, it's still not here. But when he found out I drove an ID3, he asked me what I thought about it. I told him, it's a lovely car, it's sophisticated, well-spec'd, comfortable and tech-filled, and I wouldn't get another one. He looked shocked, and more so when I spent 15 minutes telling him what I didn't like about the car. And it all boils down to the simple fact that it's a great car, but not a great electric car, which is a problem seen as how it's been designed from the ground up to be electric. Today, I'm going to dig into that statement a little to dissect what it is VW have done right and wrong when it comes to the ID3. Just as a bit of background, and so you don't think I'm moaning unnecessarily, if you cast your mind back to episode 102, Rob Shaw and I took his ID3 on a 1,000-kilometre trip around the charging wastelands. We visited Wales, Yorkshire, Humberside, Lincolnshire, Cambridgeshire, all the places where charging has traditionally been fairly poor. I drove about 50% of the time, and it was as a result of that drive that I decided I was going to go for the VW ID3 as my next EV. That and the fact that the car I really wanted, the updated Kia e-Soul, had a 12-month waiting time for delivery. So I knew about some of the problems I'm going to discuss, and many of them are what the kids like to call first-world problems. They don't necessarily put me off the car, but they do speak to a certain attitude by VW when it comes to electric cars that have put me off getting another one from the mark. If you want Rob's view on his ID3, he came in on episode 90 to chat about it. If you want video versions, check his channel and a recent video from Andrew Till on the ID3 first edition he borrowed. They all have pretty much the same conclusion I have. Now, I do want to start by saying it's a fantastic car overall. It's fairly comfortable. It has great range, 200 miles minimum in just about any weather, and it's got lots of gadgets and toys, and I really enjoy driving it. When compared with the Kia Soul I used to drive, it's in a completely different class. It drives better, it's bigger inside, but not quite as tall, and it's a far easier car to drive. 
for example, one thing I particularly like is the ability to do something simple like open the charge flap without needing to press a button on the dashboard. Just push the flap and if the car's unlocked, it springs open ready to charge. No walking to the front of the bonnet, seeing the flaps closed, walking back, opening the door, pressing the button, moving back to the front to find you didn't hit it hard enough, etc. It's great, it's quick and simple, but it's not perfect. And a lot of the things are things that are minor issues that could be sorted very simply. But VW chose not to. So let's start. The windscreen wipers are set up for a left-hand drive car. Because they're the folding arm type wipers that pivot from opposite edges of the screen, one of them is always moving later than the other. On the right-hand drive version, that one is the passenger side one, which crosses in front of the driver's window, leaving a large streak right across the eye line. If they swapped these over so the driver's wiper went first, it would be great, but they haven't. The glove compartment. Again, this is a remnant from the left-hand drive setup. On the left-hand drive car, it is obviously at the right of the dashboard. There's plenty of room over there. The glove compartment is huge, but in the right-hand drive car, it's on the left. That's also where the fuse box is located. And they've smushed the glove box in around the fuse area. And as a result, it literally cannot hold anything bigger than a small envelope. A God forbid you wanted to put a printed driver's manual in there. Which is a good job because there is no printed driver's manual. You have to use the in-car display screen to search for what you want. But there's no index. And unless you know what you're looking for, it's very difficult to find anything. For example, there's a switch in the overhead console that I spent almost an hour trying to find in the manual. Couldn't find it because there's no way of locating it in the text. It turns out it's not actually part of the manual at all. It's a, it's a button with no information to tell you what it does. And the only way to sort out what it was, was to press it. So I ended up pressing it and I got connected to some emergency support line. Now, there is a more comprehensive manual available online, however, yet again, it isn't printable. Yet again, you need to click through various menus to find what you want. And yet again, it's useless if you're in the car trying to sort an issue out. Another remnant of the left-hand drive versus right-hand drive swap is the light control panel. It's in the same relative location on both versions, i.e. just to the left of the driver's binnacle. On the left-hand drive version, this puts it in some nice space right next to the A pillar by the windscreen. On the right-hand drive version, that puts it in a narrow, barely accessible bit between the binnacle and the display screen in the center of the dashboard. Poor design. Now, I know they can change this because on the newer ID5 model, same basic platform, they've moved it to a more accessible location, but they chose not to do that on the ID3. On the subject of lights, the headlights are magnificent, bright, LED, movable, i.e. they follow the steering wheel and turn when you turn to illuminate around the corner. They're also adaptive, which means I can flick the high beams on and leave them. If something's coming the other way, the car recognizes it and flicks the appropriate part of that headlight off to stop dazzling incoming vehicles, except when it doesn't, or when it sees the reflection of its own lights in a white area ahead, like a, a road sign and thinks it's an oncoming car, thus dimming the beams unnecessarily. Uh, while we're on the subject of lights, when it's dark outside, there's a relative Blackpool illuminations worth of lights that shine out here and yon while you're driving. 
There's one in the footwell. There's one in each door panel, armrest. There's one that follows the contours of the bottom of the dashboard. There's one on the outside door handle that shines some obscure design vertically down to let you know where the ground is. There's even a nifty ID light at the base of the windscreen, which provides information when you're navigating or when there's an error or emergency. But half the controls on the center console, including the volume and the heating controls, are in complete darkness. The actual controls you touch to, you know, do something you need in the car are not lit up. Very poor design decision. For a car which is designed from the ground up to be electric, it's taken several iterations of the software to actually get a display on the dashboard to tell you the state of charge of the battery. And if you plug the car into charge, nowhere in the car does it give you an indication of the charge speed you're receiving, despite that information being available in the separate app. Now, this wouldn't be so bad, except that on my version, there's a rather nifty, if slightly scary option that allows the car to actually park itself either parallel or rear end in. I mean, it's wonderful. I've used it once to try and I've never used it again, but I can't tell how fast my car is charging. Now, I'm led to believe that this is solved in an over-the-air update to the operating system, uh, the one that was promised 12 weeks after the European rollout. Now, I didn't get a charge speed display in my Kia Soul either, but that was an old design based on a fossil fuel model created to be a compliance car, so there's a legitimate excuse for that. On a car designed from the ground up as an EV? No. Now, when the car was delivered to me, it came supplied with a Menica's Type 2 charge cable. It didn't come with a granny cable. This means when visiting relatives up north, I can't charge at their house and must instead find local public charging. My old Kia Soul, a much cheaper car, came supplied with both cables. Now, when it was delivered, I was told, there's no spare tire on this or an inflation kit because these run on self-sealing run-flat tires. Pretty cool, I thought. Except, of course, they weren't self-sealing or run-flat. I got a puncture recently and ended up having to drive to the nearest tire place about three miles, shredding the tire along the way and almost damaging the rim. The tire guy looked at it and said, the normal tires not run-flat. And I've had to go back to the lease company and get them to source and provide an inflation kit, as well as review their internal procedures after their delivery guy told me enough information. Anyway, back to the car. The sun visors. If the sun's shining directly in your eyes, they're fine. But if it's coming in at the side of the car, especially at the driver's side, and you try to pivot the visor around to provide shade, they're so short that most of the side windows left uncovered. On my Kia Soul, the visors had a little sliding portion that could be pulled out to extend the length when used on the side windows, but not the ID3. Why leave this out? So let's talk about something I love, adaptive cruise control. I love, love, love it, except when I don't. 90% of the time, it's 100% reliable and fantastic. It recognizes bends and slows down. It keeps me a set distance away from the car in front. It brings the car to a complete stop and starts it moving again when traffic continues without any driver intervention. It monitors speed limits and adjusts accordingly. It even links the sat-nav to the adaptive cruise control, so it brakes automatically for you when making a turn off a main road where ACC wouldn't normally brake. It's brilliant, apart from the times when, for no reason whatsoever, it fails to identify a vehicle in front and continues to accelerate towards it at speed. 
or it follows a car a set distance away for miles until the car moves across when entering a roundabout and the car decides there's something there and stops. Or does the opposite and accelerates towards the car that is now stationary, awaiting space to enter the roundabout. It's not self-driving, not by a long way, but it's also too quirky to rely on to be consistent at all times. It also has some interesting speed limit quirks. The A3 heading out of London has several slip roads off it that lead up to junctions with overhead roundabouts. Even though the A3 is 50 miles an hour at that point, the car thinks it's in the 30 mile an hour zone on the roundabout and randomly slams the brakes on for no reason. So the haptic buttons. Now listen, I knew the car had haptic buttons when I bought it. I'm fine with the haptic buttons. But sometimes they don't react in a way I'm expecting them to. Take the cruise control. If I want to change the cruise control speed, I click a button on the steering wheel and it knocks five miles per hour off the set speed. Great. Except sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it knocks one mile an hour off the speed. Unless I want to knock one mile an hour off the speed, in which case it sometimes knocks off five miles an hour and sometimes knocks off one mile an hour. There's no consistency and it's a result of the inconsistent haptic touch. I also want to know whose idea it was to remove a set of electric window buttons from four down to two and replace them with a haptic toggle switch to allow one set of buttons to control both front and back. It's unintuitive and it saves what? One button overall? Now, how about the wireless charging pad? I love the fact I can drop the phone into the wireless charging slot and it just charges. Except it's not that quick. In many instances, in many instances, it barely charges the phone quicker than the Apple CarPlay can discharge it. But the main issue I have is that it heats the phone up to the point where it shuts down certain functions. I then have to remove it from the slot and let it cool down. I mean, sure, I can use the provided cable and USB-C connector, but if that's there, why include wireless charging in the first place? So far, I've talked about a lot of the design features, the left-hand drive versus right-hand drive issues and some little quirks with the tech but I've avoided talking in depth about the elephant in the room, the ID software that runs the car. Now bear in mind that the version I have is version 3.0. This is a much better version than the version Rob Shaw had, and it's a light year away from the original release version, which I will remind you was so bad they actually delayed the rollout of the car to try and fix. It's gone through two major upgrade iterations and Lord knows how many smaller releases and it's still crap. For example, there's a dashboard screen which shows up some key items on the display. If I press a button, I get another dashboard display in a different format. I can also swipe down at any point on any screen and get a smaller dashboard with key functions on it. Some of them are user-definable too. But why have three different screens that give different versions of the same or similar information? That wouldn't be an issue if they were all configurable, but they're not. And that wouldn't be an issue if it wasn't for the fact that underneath the screen, there are four haptic buttons which display information, some of which is not available on any of the other dashboard screens. On top of that, there's no way of doing simple things like switching the heated steering wheel on and off. It needs two clicks on the screen minimum or turning the fan up or down. Same thing. I mean, sure, I can try the voice recognition and get that to do it, but it's, shall we say, temperamental and slow, very slow. 
One of the functions that's on the four haptic buttons, but nowhere else, is the drive mode selector. This displays a screen which has four big buttons to control which driving mode you're in. The modes are Sport, which tightens everything up, remaps the torque curve to give you more power, and makes everything display red on the screen. And then there's Comfort, which relaxes things a little, pulls back on the power curve, and makes everything blue on the screen. Uh, there's Custom, which allows you to define your, define your own drive mode and makes everything yellow on the screen. And there's Eco, which is for driving economically, and it makes everything green. Oh, wait, no, it doesn't. You'd think the Eco setting was green, right? No, it makes everything a slightly different blue color. I mean, come on, this is basic user interface design, guys. If we're talking about good operating systems, we have to mention Tesla. They were the original and they're still the best. Nobody has yet been able to replicate the Tesla experience in their in-car operating system, which is something I find astonishing. But what's worse is that nobody has even come close to doing that. And the ID3 is certainly nowhere near. There are rumors that uh, Herbert Dees, the head of VW, was fired last year as a result of the software issues on the ID range. Now, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. The fact is that at the moment, I'm driving around in a brand new electric vehicle that can drive itself along the road, negotiate turns, identify speed limits, bends, roundabouts, other vehicles, road work, traffic jams, and park itself when it gets to the destination. But it can't clean the windscreen without leaving a smear across the driver's eye line, nor can it tell me how fast it's being charged. And a large chunk of the necessary buttons are invisible at night because they aren't lit up. For the price of the car and the newness of the, the design, that's not acceptable. If the company deems self-parking to be more of a priority than having a user interface that works well, or windscreen wipers that clean, or knowing how fast your electric car is actually charging, then the company obviously has different priorities than I do when it comes to electric vehicles. And that's the reason I won't be getting another ID3 or any car based on the ID platform or software until that changes. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. Something a little different this week, not strictly EV or renewable, but interesting nonetheless. An Israeli-based food company has perfected a completely plant-based egg. And it's not some sort of egg substitute that you can whisk up into scrambled eggs. It's egg-shaped, white, squidgy, and when broken apart, produces a yellow, runny yolk. The poached egg is from Israeli company Yo Egg, and it's making its US debut uh, this week in a handful of Los Angeles restaurants. Made primarily out of chickpea and soy protein, along with sunflower oil, potato starch, water, and a few other ingredients, the eggs are first for the plant-based market, according to the company. The company has an Israeli-based production factory and recently opened another in Los Angeles with the capacity to produce thousands of eggs every day. This week, Yo Eggs Poached Egg is debuting on menus at six Los Angeles restaurants, including Real Food Daily, Swingers Diner and Flora Vegan. They look identical to bird eggs and I can't wait to have a go if and when they get released here in the UK. The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK, which helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. ZapMap is free to download and use with subscription plans for enhanced features such as using ZapMap in-car on CarPlay or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. 
If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Musings TV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link's in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? If you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings and you can do just that. Takes Apple Pay too. ko-fi.com slash evmusings. I have a couple of ebooks out there if you want to read something on your Kindle. <laughs> so you've gone electric. It is available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. So you've gone renewable is also available on Amazon for 99p, and it covers installing solar panels, a storage battery, and a heat pump. Why not check them both out? Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingCV with the words, built from the ground up to be meh. Hashtag, if you know, you know, nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder, Simon. You know, he's always wanted to try the next big thing when it comes to personal electric vehicles. He's heard a rumor that there's a single person flying skateboard that he wants to try. I asked him where on earth he could actually fly one of these, given that it needs a ramp to get airborne. He told me the A3 heading out of London has several slip roads off it that lead up to junctions with overhead roundabouts. Thanks for listening. Bye.